This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. After being away from the cinema for a majority of 2020, there's a sublime moment in Focus Features' Last Night in Soho, where Anya Taylor-Joy sings an a cappella version of Petula Clark's Downtown. It's poetic, it's a showstopper, and a keen reminder of the power of the big screen. Here to talk to us today is the film's director, producer, writer, Edgar Wright, and co-writer, Christy Wilson-Carnes, on Crew Call. Edgar, for those for those who don't know, tell us about how Christy came on board. It was a friend who recommended her, and then you you met her, and it was just no pun intended. Sparks flew. <laughs> well, it was. Um, it's a sad, you see, you've, you've set me up for a name drop now, but now I have to do it. <laughs> the friend was Sam Mendes. He wasn't he wasn't Sir Sam Mendes then, so I'm going to call him by what he was at the time. I'm going to be like. Um, I always like sending emails to Sam Mendes because it's never not funny to write, dear sir. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but he, I was having lunch with him uh, when I was editing Baby Driver. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I was saying, oh, I need to find a co-writer. He just said, apropos of nothing, have you ever met Christy Wilson Cairns? And I said, no. And he said, oh, you guys would get on like a house on fire. And so I contacted Christy and we went out for like a drink in Soho and um, and this is like this is another bit that sounds like we're kind of um, bragging or something, but it's it's pertinent to the story. We were in Soho House in in London on Dean Street, and this this is what says everything about Soho. If you don't know the area, it is that kind of thing where the sort of like the high end of show business and the sort of the 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 darker side mingle and have done for hundreds of years. And Soho House in London is directly opposite one of the few strip clubs that's left called Sunset Strip on Dean Street. And Christy said, pointed to the strip club and said, I used to live above that strip club for five years <laughs> when I was working around the corner in the Toucan, which is the Irish pub that's in the movie that's a real pub. So as soon as Christy had said this, and I'd been, I'd had the story for Soho for like 10 years at this point, I was like, ah, I have something I need to talk to you about. <laughs> So where were you when you first met Christy? Where were you in the story? Where, had you written half of it? Or did you know that, did you know what your, did you know what the second half of this movie was going to be? Yeah, basically I had the story for the movie, the, the, whole, the whole thing. What had happened prior to that was that I had had the idea for the story for maybe since, you know, like before 10 years ago, like I'd been hatching it and it eventually became, I had the whole plot. And I would tell people about it, um, you know, in a sort of campfire way. I have this idea for this kind of psychological horror movie. And, you know, anybody that would listen, I would tell them it. And, and I did pitch it to my um, uh, producer, Naira Park, um, back, you know, back 10 years ago. 
But around that time, I was about to go off and do the world's end. And it wasn't something where I was able to jump in and write it. So I said, well, let's, why don't we research it? And we hired this amazing researcher called Lucy Pardee, who just won a BAFTA as the casting director on Rocks, the first BAFTA for casting direct, directing. And she basically, I gave her a list of everything, every facet of the movie. And what I wanted to get is some real testimonials rather than second, third hand stories, wicked whispers and malicious gossip and urban legend is actually get some real facts, which I did. And I got this tome of research that was like fascinating and harrowing and intimidating in a weird way. And so that was all I had is I had the plot, I had these notes. I also had started amassing the songs for the soundtrack where I sort of knew what the film should be and I knew what songs should be in it. So, I mean, then Christy, you, I mean, you can, you can say what happened next when we went out. <laughs> yeah, so I, obviously I was like, I lived above this strip club and it was really loud and it, not, not the most kind of like, you know, healthy place to live, but really good location. And, um, and so I think Edgar sort of recognised me as like another Soho person. And he's like, I have this idea, I want to tell you it, but can we go and see kind of like some of the, you know, like the seedier underground drinking bars, like those, and I was like, oh yeah, that's my stomping grounds. So we went on like a, we went on like a, basically a pub crawl and we ended up in this basement bar called Trisha's, which is a fine establishment. It's slightly, I mean, Edgar, you like to call it a haunt, which is very accurate. Yeah, a Soho haunt. And um, and in this corner, several gins in for me, you were quite well behaved, but I was quite drunk. He told me the story of last night in Soho, the whole story. And I remember sitting there, I was holding onto the table, not because of the gins, but because I was like so utterly entranced by it. I remember just kind of like there listening. And then about, I think maybe nine months after that, I got a phone call and he said, do you remember that story? And I, like my office is in Soho. I, I'm in Soho pretty much every day of the week anyway. And I saw, so I had always thought about the stories I was walking through because I was walking through literally the locations of it. And I was like, yeah, of course, of course I still think about this story. And he's like, do you want to write it with me? I was like, yes, of course. And then pretty much after I had agreed, we had like a short window. We had like a short six week window to do it because I was about to go off and do 1917 um, rehearsals. So he sent me this, this pile of research, which was like the phone book, it was huge and incredible and so in depth and had been amassed over years. Um, the playlist with pretty much in the songs in the exact order they are in the film, which is like how well conceived it was. And then the story. And then we met in Soho. Again, we got an office around the corner from where we are now and um, sat and wrote it. And I remember the first day I turned up in the office, you were a bit worried because all these note cards were on the wall. It had a bit of a like serial killer chic to it, which you were you were slightly like, I hope Christy doesn't just come in here, see this and bolt, but that's my aesthetic. So I was like, oh, I'm home. This is exactly what my house looks like. Like I just had to clean a bunch of stuff behind here so you wouldn't think I was planning a murder. <laughs> So this, the, the setup for this is this wonderful fantasy romance. Did you always, so it was always a psychological thriller in the end. It was always going to end in kind of a Rosemary's Baby type of area. Yeah, the ending was always the ending. I think sort of like, in a way, like the, the first half of the movie is like, is like the allure of like the, the town before the kind of like the sort of, the shoe starts to drop and it was always that kind of it was always that sort of the, the idea of like in that kind of careful what you wish for fantasy where 
you know, you get seduced by the bright lights of London and then, but by the time things start to get darker, it's too late to get off the ride. Like, so Eloise is going back to the sixties in her dreams at night, but there's a point where she can't, she can't escape that. And so it was something that I kind of thought that early on, it was like the thing that was where, where a dream, a literal dream becomes a literal nightmare is that she's she's going back to the 60s through through the experience of somebody else so she's so supernaturally switched on that she can relive the memories of a former occup occupant of her bedroom however she's not a time traveler like marty mcfly so there's nothing that she can do in the past to change the future even though she tries to or feels like she could maybe influence events everything is like a foregone conclusion and at that point, it becomes a horror film because Thomas and Mackenzie's character, Eloise, cannot avert the disaster on the horizon. And then at a certain point, she's forced to see things that she doesn't want to see and that she can't unsee. And then there's a sort of key point in the movie and the sort of going into the second half where now it's actually after she kind of like, um, you know, kind of breaks through a mirror. Like at, at that point, the past is now coming to get her. And so like the sort of things that she's seen in kind of like in her dreams that are in the past and now sort of invading the present. So it was always there. I guess part of it was like, I was like kind of films and a lot of my films like it's the, a, a slow burn from one thing into another, you know? Um, yeah. I was gonna do another name drop, but I guess it's, it's, it's out there that he liked the film anyway, cause he tweeted about it. But Stephen King, when he, he he tweeted about the movie already, but then when he emailed me, he says, it was the best email you can get. He said, yes, I like the fact that your movie starts light, then gets darker and then goes super dark. I really dug it. <laughs> the, the, um, that before you met uh, Anya, uh, did you always have, I mean, the, the scene that is just, I mean, it was the anchor for marketing and it's the scene that if you haven't been in a cinema, for for a while, uh, just makes you melt. Is when she was is when Sandy sings a cappella downtown. Was that scene always in the original script as such, or did that uh, spring? Did that? Did you become inspired once Anya signed on? Well, bizarrely enough, like no, that was one of the like I said, the outline that I presented Christy with. Um, when we started is pretty much the movie with a couple of like key exceptions. One of them is that that audition scene was not in the original outline. It was one of Christie's first suggestions is you said, I think there needs to be one more dream before things start to turn bad. So there's like two kind of dreams that even though they have lots of red flags, they're still kind of glamorous and alluring enough to seduce Eloise to sort of be completely obsessed with not just the past, but with this character to the point where she starts dressing like her, dyes her hair to look like her. And so Christy suggested, what if we had a second dream? What if it was like, they, you see her audition? And, and as soon as you said that, I said, and it's funny, I had most of the soundtrack worked out and then I had a little B list of like songs that I would love to include, but I don't know where they go. One of which was Downtown. So I said, oh, she should sing Downtown. I mean, I'm sure I said that as soon as you mentioned the idea of an yeah, audition. Yeah, I don't right? even. I hadn't even finished the sentence. It should be an audition, and you were like downtown, and I was like, okay. 
And what we didn't really know at that point is I, I think I had an idea that Anya Taylor-Joy could sing, but in that way, like when you ask an actor if they can ride a horse, they're like, oh yeah, of course. But I yeah. just said to Anya like, oh, can you sing? And she goes, yeah, no, I sing. So it wasn't until we'd written the scene yeah. And then she went to do like a session with Steve Price, the composer, uh, you know, Steve, Anya and a pianist from the, from the Groucho Club, in fact, Roddy, the pianist from the Groucho Club, which is a famous London, famous Soho drinking club, the original one, in fact. So Steve kind of said, he texted me, he goes, oh, Anya's really good. And then he sent me the kind of videos and it was like, oh, okay. She, I mean, she can, she's got like a, a pop star voice. She's really like amazing voice. So that was sort of a bit of weird kismet where we just banked on the idea that she could pull it off, not really knowing um, how great it was going to be. I want to know more about Christy's superpowers. Uh, she, you're very much in demand, Christy. I mean, hit it out of the ballpark, 1917. <laughs> No, I mean, no cuts, one continuous shot. Um, there are some cuts, I hate to, you heard it here first, there are some cuts. <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Christy, when you came on board with this, what else? I want to know more of your contributions. Was there a third act? that needed to be fixed. Was there, was there her Eloise living in the apartment uh, above Diana Rigg? Was that all from the strip club? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, so much of the film is kind of weirdly autobiographical to Edgar and myself. Um, like we both were, well, I was a young woman, you were a young man. We came to London you know, with the dream of working in an industry that we had no real connection to. And like, you know, fashion, getting into fashion is as hard as getting into film, especially if you don't have any sort of lineage. So I think we both understood what it was like to come to try and, you know, go to university in a place very different from where you grew up. So there's loads of autobiographical stuff. And obviously she works at the Toucan, I worked at the Toucan. That came out of the, you know, I, I hate when you see in films, you've got like, you know, young people living in a big city and they've got like beautiful giant apartments and you're like, how do they pay for that? So like a lot of it was like, oh, how, how do we make this feel like a real story? Because I think the only way you get sucked into the 60s and into the the sort of drama of it and the the kind of the wonder of it is if it does feel real to begin with, if it feels like a real human. So yeah, I mean, all the story was there and I, I like credit where credit's due, like Edgar had such a an arc worked out. So I, you know, I don't feel like I had to do that much. I think it was just more about bringing our own experiences and then in building the characters and enhancing them and, and you find these wee moments and because we sat in the room and wrote it together I can't be like oh that was mine and that was his. I like to think most of it's his and I just kind of brought the rebels or brought the candy and got got to stay. <laughs> I, 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 a major a major kind of like um, contribution or a suggestion that sort of changed the movie in a big way and maybe even accounted for like Anya was always on board but like changing parts 
mm-hmm. was that I had originally envisaged maybe the 60 scenes as being like silent or not so much silent as they had music, but they didn't really have dialogue. So that Sandy was more of, I guess, like a bit of an illusion, um, you know, like a, like a kind of mirage essentially. And again, one of Christie's first suggestions and, and, you know, when you came into the room, maybe even on the first day that we worked, like your, your big pitch was like, I think you need to dramatize the 60s scenes because the audience like Eloise has to fall in love with Sandy. And I think it's very difficult to fall in love with her if you don't hear her speak or get to know her. And so it was like such a great suggestion because I think from that point forward, it then we enjoyed writing the 60 scenes, especially the earlier nicer ones. Yeah. <laughs> there uh, was like sort of, and you know, like some of our favorite bits that are, all revolve around that. And obviously then just adds a whole other layer of like, not just kind of the, the dialogue in the past, but how that echoes into the present. And especially when you have characters that, you know, are in the earlier scenes that are in the later scenes as well. So I'd say that was like one of the biggest kind of like um, suggestions that changed the entire thing. And then beyond that is I I had met Anya in 2015, just after Sundance. I had coffee with her because I was on the jury uh, when Robert Eggers won Best Director at Sundance and uh, and saw The Witch. and, and, And even though I hadn't written a word of the screenplay yet, I said, she should be in my Soho movie. And I met her for coffee at Little Doms in Las Feliz. And as, as I said before, I told her the entire plot of Last Night in Soho. And she sat there. Oh, she must have been like 17 at the time as well. She said like, she was like, oh my God, I want to be in that film. So then over that time, until we started writing the screenplay, Anya was going to play Eloise. And it wasn't until like we were writing it and the Sandy part started to get kind of bigger and have dialogue and be like a sort of a real character um, that I started to get the idea that Anya should be playing Sandy instead. And partly because I think in the, in the interim since The Witch, I'd seen her in other movies. I'd even just, even just seeing her on the red carpet and sort of like, you know, she's this sort of like amazing firework exploding like in the fashion world. And I started to think, huh, I wonder if Anya should play Sandy. And so when we finished the first draft and sent it to Anya, she was still the only actor that we'd approached at that point. I was a bit nervous that she would not want to play the second lead, but she did. She said, oh, I'd love to play that part. And so then the brief was open to bring in Thomas and Mackenzie as Eloise. The, um, tell me about recreating that, that shot. She walks, she walks out into Soho in, you know, in the late 60s, and then there's the James Bond poster. I mean, recreating that, was that post-pandemic or were you able to pull that shot off pre-pandemic? And just the whole, was there any digital or was it all, everything was fine-tuned down to, down to shopping windows that had retro stuff in it? Well, basically, so we shot the, we shot the entire movie before the pandemic. And then the only things that we shot after the pandemic is we we were supposed to do some additional filming in like March 2020. Literally, the the, the day that we were about to start was the day that, you know, the, the country was shut down. So our additional filming got kind of like, we'd even built some of the sets again. It was that kind of, we were so close to doing it 
So then we did some additional filming, like we were one of the first films back. And, uh, and then I also shot that sequence in the, in the final credits with empty Soho, which I did shoot in lockdown. But the, the shot you're talking about was shot in, in when London was very open. And as such, like a lot of the location, all of the locations in the film are actually in Soho and Fitzrovia, which is the neighborhood just north of Oxford Street. Um, so it's all very central. And that particular shot is on the Haymarket, which if you know London is one of the busiest streets. It's just around the corner from Piccadilly Circus. It couldn't be busier. Our location manager, the amazing Camilla Stevenson, we, we met her first on the movie because locations like that, you had to give five months notice wow. um, to the council, to city of Westminster, you had five months notice. So there's a thing where, this is where it gets really ambitious, is that Marcus Rowland, the production designer, he redressed those streets, certainly the ones that you can see close to you, like the cinema and the block either side of it and the block behind Thomason. That was all redresses the 60s. The cinema had a Thunderball marquee, like the vintage posters, the vintage bus, vintage cars, extras. Uh, where like Double Negative, which is the VFX house and the amazing supervisor Tom Proctor comes in, he sort of augments that by putting in more cars than we have. So maybe if we've got six taxis, he can make that like more. He could put more cars in the distance he like in, in the very distance of the shot, there's like a digital Piccadilly circus, which is sort of out of focus, but it's like all of the modern stuff is gone. And like the vintage stuff is there because obviously back in the sixties, everything was neon, not like the horrible <laughs> LED displays they have now. Me, me and Christy have a, we have a pitch for the mayor of London. It would, London would be so Instagrammable again, if you got rid of the LED screens and brought back neon yeah like make piccadilly circus neon again it would be the eighth wonder of the world i swear to great god hats made make piccadilly circus neon again it's quite they're quite big hats but we'll get them made <laughs> did you shoot in the middle of the night yeah we are not just that it's not only five months ahead of time it's like august the 19th like so sunday august the 19th is like you have from 10 30 p.m to 2 30 a.m so we had a specific window of time and also we had to keep even though we had all of our period cars and a period bus and extras uh, we had to leave one lane open for ambulances and modern buses okay. so and because of the one-way system so we had four hours to get that shot and i think we did some other shots afterwards where we didn't need to close the whole road like the scene where uh, matt and anya run out of the club um but you know so you got like kind of um you know, four hours, and my AD said, because of the because of the amount of uh, um, the one-way system and having to redress all the traffic, he said, yes, I think we have two takes an hour. And I was like, oh, wow. So I was like, four hours, I got eight takes. <laughs> like, so, so it really puts the pressure on because, yeah, so we basically did it. I think we did it in less than eight takes, but we also, because we couldn't rehearse at the location because it's one of the busiest streets in London. We only had it closed for those four hours. So we actually rehearsed on an airstrip. We went to an airstrip and we marked out how big the road was what, and had all the cars there because Thomas and Mackenzie has to do a, a, like a, an uninterrupted Steadicam shot where she walks out into traffic. And we didn't want to make her do that for the first time on the night. 
we wanted we needed to rehearse it with like you got stunt drivers and like so it was it was a whole thing and but it is one of those shots that I'm extremely proud of it like I think it's probably one of the best shots in, in my career but at the start of the night that nagging feeling of like I wonder whether we can pull this off <laughs> um before we go I wanted to ask you both about future projects Edgar, is the running man your next thing? Is that a real thing or not? I know you were talking with Pete Hammond about, you know, a, a, a follow-up to uh, Baby Driver is on the top of your head. Well, the thing is, even though all of these things have been mentioned in Deadline itself, <laughs> I, still, I have this sort of thing where I'm very, having like nearly made a movie and then not made it, not mentioning any, any names, the N word, <laughs> but like, I, my only regret is like, I, I, I sincerely don't regret like not making the movie because I got credited as a writer and it wasn't, you know, I was, I went off and did something else and, and I have no regrets about it. But the only thing I regret is doing interviews about a movie that I never made. And it's always something that kind of that to me is sort of somehow just like, and I, after that, I just, and maybe I'm getting superstitious in my old age. It's like, never do never say anything record about a movie that's not in the can yet, just in case. So as such, I've adopted this policy of just like not talking about future projects, which I know is boring and I'm sorry. And I know you want the hot goss, but I have various things in development. They're all exciting. And which one is next is a mystery to me, which will hopefully be solved early next year. You and Joe, uh, Joe, you and Joe Wright are going to switch bodies and do a twins movie and tell the world that you're both brothers when you're really. <laughs> How do you say that? I did, I did an interview in Japan the other day and the uh -huh. interview, interviewer said, Mr. Wright, this is a very feminist film. And at first I was surprised, but then I thought maybe you made it for your young daughter. And I was like, ah, I don't, I don't have a daughter. She goes, oh, sorry, I'm looking at her notes. Maybe for your, your, your sons. I said, I, I don't have two sons, but Joe Wright has a daughter and two sons. Maybe you're thinking of him. And she was so, so embarrassed. And I said, and she goes, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I didn't. I said, well, you know, we both have brown hair and we're both British and we both have the same surname. So it's a mistake to make. Uh, you were forgiven. <laughs> and Christy, I, is the Taika Star Wars project real? Is that, is that real? I, I, I can't confirm or deny anything partly okay. I'm learning from Edgar as in like I'm I'm very superstitious and I don't want to speak about a film that's not in the can but also Mickey Mouse at any moment if I talk about Star Wars will burst in here and just beat me to death and I want to live <laughs> I want to live so I can't well, talk about Star Wars <laughs> I await Taika's movie about the cantina about the cantina <laughs> people um but you you do have a new deal over at Universal, and you I do yes. Can you can you talk about anything that's in development? I know you've got the Good Nurse. That, well, that no, was... the, good, the Good Nurse is in the can. The Good Nurse is currently being edited, and I think I don't know exactly that comes out at some point next year. And it's um you know Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne absolutely, I think personally performances that I could only dream of getting in a film that I wrote. So I I, I absolutely. I'm so excited for that to be out in the world and the amazing to be as Lindholm directing it. So I'll talk about that one all day long. And and yeah, I've got I've got a lovely, a very humbly named great company. It's my company with Universal, uh, which is me and my best friend Jack from childhood who is a producer. And um, yeah, we've got some exciting stuff coming up. But 
yeah, again, I'm not going to be, I'm going to take a leaf out of the very wise Mr. Edgar Wright's book and say nothing. <laughs> I, I want to give an incredibly vague bit of gossip, but like me and Christy have decided that we want to write something together again, but we don't know what it is. That's the real. <laughs> <laughs> all, that, all that we know is that we enjoy working together and we've said at several occasions, on this press tour and afterwards saying, hey, we should write something together again. And like almost just as an excuse to hang out. Yeah, I'm like, when, when, what is it? It doesn't matter, but when we can start tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> running on rent by both being in the same office in Soho, number one. Well, I'd save a fortune, I'd save a fortune. Thank you both, Christy and thank Edgar. You. I can't thank you enough. Thanks, Anthony, much appreciated. Ciao. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.